Well, good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, uh, let's open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 35, beginning at verse 16. Wish I had more of a Thanksgiving message for you today, (laughs) but there is a death that's going to happen in our chapter, so I've entitled this The Reality of Death. Um, Just a quick uh, announcement as we, probably no one's thinking about Christmas yet, right? Let's just get through Thanksgiving. Just uh, to kind of orient us a little bit, um, thank Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year. So Christmas Eve, we are going to have our normal Sunday morning service. But it will go from, if I have this right, 10.30 to 12. So what we normally do from 11 to 12.30 will be from 10.30 to 12 Christmas Eve. We won't be having our normal Sunday school, but what we're doing here um, will happen on Christmas Eve, just in a slightly different time slot. And we are going to be having our traditional Christmas Eve service that evening, I think beginning at 6 o'clock, where we're going to be doing some uh, traditional Christmas Singing uh, from 6 to 7, a short message from me. I hate to advertise it this way, but here it goes. In and out, under an hour. (laughs) I feel like I'm cheapening something by saying it that way. So just want you to get get us uh, thinking about that. Um, Alyssa was just up here, gave a great... Missions moment on Israel. That is in essence what is developing here in the book of Genesis, the nation of Israel. All of this sort of painstaking detail that we're studying is about God raising up a very special nation uh, through which he will bless the world. Jacob a key player in this, has left Haran. He has gone back to the land of Israel. He's gone into Shechem. We talked about what happened there in Genesis chapter 34. And then God says, leave Shechem and go down uh, south to a place called Bethel. And it's in Bethel that the Lord appears to Jacob. It's probably the fourth uh, appearance of God to Jacob and gives him a great word there that we studied last week in verses 9 through 15. And now what happens is the birth of Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. And that's recorded in verses 16 through 20. Eleven of the sons have been born uh, there's going to be 12 tribes. A 12th son, we have said, is on the horizon. 
And here we get the details of this 12th birth. Notice, first of all, the circumstances in this whole thing. We pick it up there in verse 16. It says, Then then they journeyed from Bethel, and there was still some distance to go to uh, Ephrath. Um, Some passages translate that as Ephratah. So there is a sort of a movement from Bethel, and now he's moving back uh, further down south um, to a place called um, Ephratah. And Ephratah is near Bethlehem, in, near, and around Bethlehem. I guess one of the things that's always fascinating me about Bible study is the history that's involved here. You know, the specific places of geography. Uh, you have uh, Shechem, you have Bethel, you have Bethlehem, you have Ephratah. And the reason I keep bringing this up is I want us to understand that as we're moving through the Bible, you're moving through a document that is historical. It's accurate in everything it says. This is not like reading uh, Jack and the Beanstalk or Tall Tales or Veggie Tales. This is actual history. And the reason this keeps needing to be emphasized is the public school system wants you to believe that what we're doing here on Sunday morning is not real history. That's just religious stuff. We're the historians. And so many of our youth fall away from Christ as they go into college because they get under the spell that everything they've been taught is just sort of religious fiction. The people with the PhDs after their names, you know, they're the real historians. Um, I'm here to tell you that the Bible doesn't read that way. Everything that the Bible says can be validated. It's accurate. They have been attacking the Bible for 2,000 years, which is an awful long time. Uh, an additional 1,500 years, if you want to factor in Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Attack after attack, criticism after criticism has come against the Bible, seeking to attack it and discredit it. And here we are, the Bible today has stood the test of time. As you're reading about this, you're reading about real places, real people, and God chose this historical context to reveal his spiritual principles. So in these last days, we need to stand against the mindset of the secularist or the secular humanist that wants to drive, you know, some kind of wedge between real history and faith. The Bible will not allow you to have that option. It doesn't read that way. It's real geography and real history. And so Jacob is now leaving Bethel. And he's going near Bethlehem. And I find it very interesting that the Lord would have us in this passage this time of the year because there's a famous prophecy given about that area concerning the birth of Jesus. Micah would prophesy in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, this is the same place that Jacob is now moving towards. 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There's coming an eternal being. You'll notice that word eternity at the end of that verse in Micah 5 verse 2. There's coming one and Micah gives you the exact place he's going to be born. He's not going to be born in Bethlehem because when you study the Bible and study a Bible map, what you're going to see very fast is that there are two Bethlehems. There's a Bethlehem in Galilee, and there's a totally different one two miles to the south of Jerusalem called Bethlehem Ephratah. And Micah the prophet, and this is a good 700 years before Jesus ever showed up, says when your Messiah comes, it's not going to be from that city that bears the same name, but it's going to be from that one over there. So it's pinpointing the exact birthplace of the Messiah. It would be like if I wanted to identify somebody, I could tell you what hemisphere they lived in. Then I could be more specific and tell you what country they lived in. If they lived in the United States, I could tell you what state they reside in. But within each state, there are multiple counties. I could then tell you what county that they're living in. But within every county, there are multiple cities. I could then tell you what city they're living in. I could then give you their street address. And then I could say, well, on that particular street, um, there are a lot of different houses with different bedrooms. (laughs) And I could tell you, I could be very specific, they sleep in that bedroom over there. This, uh, in essence, is what Bible prophecy does revealing the birthplace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts off very generically at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, verse 15. He's going to be born from the seed of the woman. And as you travel through the Bible, it's like a giant funnel, and it starts to get more and more specific, more and more narrower, giving more and more information about the coming Messiah Right down to the specific city he'd be born in. Oh, by the way, there's two Bethlehems. Not that one over there, but this one over here. This was given centuries in advance. To my knowledge, the Quran or any other alleged holy book does nothing like this. The Bible is completely and totally unique in terms of the fact that it stakes its reputation on the ability to predict the future with ironclad precision. And why wouldn't it do that? God wrote it. And he knows everything. He is omniscient. So just some things to sort of keep in mind, you know, as we talk about Jacob now leaving Bethel and going to Bethlehem uh, Ephratah. It's kind of interesting how what the Bible teaches is what has been will be again. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived other than Jesus, wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. History, as far as the Bible is concerned, is cyclical. 
It is interesting when we were in Genesis 22, some time back, 15 years ago, something like that, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. That's in Genesis 22, verse 2. It says, then he said, now take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I tell you. That's an interesting location because that is where Solomon, a thousand years later, built the temple. Second Chronicles 31 verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And then a thousand years after that, that's the identical location where our Lord was sacrificed for the sins of the world. All three major events, whether it be Abraham and his command from God to sacrifice Isaac, whether it be where Solomon built the temple, whether it be where our Lord was crucified, took place on Mount Moriah. You're seeing that same kind of cyclical history here as now Jacob is moving into Bethlehem, Ephratah, where near that place, something very significant is about to happen, the birth of Benjamin, which is the same general area where 2,000 years later something very specific is going to happen, which we celebrate next month, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. History in the Bible has a tendency to, to recycle. That which has been is that which will be. More evidence that this book must have been breathed into existence by God himself. So those are the circumstances, and then we get some information about Benjamin's birth. Uh, we pick it up there in verses 16, second part of the verse, through verse 18. Rachel goes into labor. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephratah, Rachel began to conceive, and she suffered severe labor. Uh, The Hebrew here um, is hard labor. Labor, as we're going to see, which brought her to the point of death. And through this process, Benjamin is born. Look at verse 17. When she was in severe labor, see how it's repeated there, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for now you have another son. It's interesting that this is a fulfillment of a desire that Rachel had in her heart. You might remember going all the way back to Genesis 30, verse 24. She had had a son. His name was Joseph. And then upon the birth of Joseph, it says in Genesis 30, verse 24, she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. 
and here the Lord is making good on that desire which was in her heart. Pay uh, attention in your life to the desires of your heart. And obviously here I'm not referring to sinful impulses. I am referring to sort of a deep down yearning for something or to do something that's in God. Because generally speaking, if you have that kind of desire for something, whether it be marriage or the desire to be a parent or the desire to have a certain ministry or the desire to have a certain career, it's sort of there. It kind of aches at you constantly and it won't go away. Chances are it's the Lord that put it there. And the Lord, by giving you that desire, is directing the course of your life. Uh, I, I haven't talked to Alyssa, who presented the missions moment earlier, but I would bet this, upon talking to her, seeing her heart for the ministry that she has, I would bet this, that years and years and years ago, there was a desire for her to step out and have that kind of a ministry. And it was the Lord that put that desire in her heart. And and she just decided to move in the direction of that godly desire. And if it's the Lord that put the desire in a person's heart, then it's just a matter of time before the Lord can rearrange the circumstances of one's life and allow that desire to come to fruition. Why wouldn't God do that? He's the author of the desire to begin with. There's actually a psalm on this. It's in Psalm uh, 37 and verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Notice the order here. First, delight yourself in the Lord, number one. And then number two, he will give you the desires of your heart. That's an important order. Because as you delight yourself in the Lord, consecrate yourself Unto the Lord, seek fellowship with the people of God, seek his counsel in his word, stay close to him in prayer. As you're delighting yourself in the Lord, as you're walking out your sanctification, what the Lord does during those times is he will take his desires and put them deep into your heart. And as you move out in the direction of the fulfillment of those desires, the Lord starts to arrange circumstances in your life whereby those desires are fulfilled. Because it's really not your desire at the end of the day. It is, but God is the ultimate author of these desires. And so it was always Rachel's ambition to have another son. That was five chapters earlier. And here we're learning that desire is now coming to fruition. Uh, through Jacob, you have Rachel. And Rachel had already had Joseph as a son. She wanted another son. And this is what exactly what God is giving her with the birth of Benjamin. And with the birth of Benjamin, what you have is the, is the, the tools are now in place. The foundation is in place for the 12 tribes of Israel. Because each tribe is going to emanate from each of these 12 sons. 
Benjamin is very interesting because Benjamin is the only one of the twelve that was born in the land of Israel. In fact, at this time, it's not even called the land of Israel. That That's coming. But it's called the land of Canaan. The other 11, you'll recall, were born when Jacob was up north in a place called Haran, Padan Aram, as he was being mistreated by Laban. That's where the other 11 were born, and Benjamin is the first one of the 12 that is actually born within the land of promise, the land that God bequeathed to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so his birth is described here, verse 17. When he, when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. Well, if we have another son, he has to have a name. So his naming is described there in verse 18. First Rachel, the mom, names him. And then Jacob names him. Now look at verse 18 very carefully. This is why I entitled this the reality of death. Because death is all around us. People die all the time. And yet most people have sort of a faint or foggy notion of what actually transpires when a human being physically dies. It's actually right there in verse 18. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. In other words, the birth of her son was causing her death. Now, that in and of itself is an outworking of something that God said all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 16. Now, if we were in Genesis 22 five years ago, we might have been in Genesis 3 ten years ago, for all I know. But it was there that God spoke to our forebears of the consequences of original sin. He spoke two things to Adam. He spoke two things to the serpent. He spoke two things to the woman. And to the woman, he said, God, as a consequence of sin... The consequence will not be childbearing because prior to sin, God said be fruitful and multiply. The consequence is now childbearing would be extremely difficult and painful. Genesis 3 verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and you will bring forth children. It is a known fact, and praise the Lord, we're living today with the technology that we have and the medical understanding that we have that many, many women historically, right going down through history, have perished or died in childbearing. What is happening to Rachel is an outworking of that prophecy. God here is not saying this is a good thing. He's not saying this was part of my original plan. What he's saying is this is now what's going to happen because you have made a decision as my creatures to rebel against me. The painfulness of childbearing. If there are certain books you should give yourself to today, 
I would get rid of all of the Jesus junk that's out there. A lot of spiritual junk food floating around. And start to fill your soul with some sound theology. One of my favorite books out there is this book by the late John F. Walverd. The title of it is Every Prophecy of the Bible. I read that title and I said, oh, come on, you couldn't cover every prophecy of the Bible, could you, in a book? And yet he did it. And what he shows in this book is the pattern of prophetic fulfillment. Many of the prophecies are yet to come, unfulfilled, but many of them, as we've seen from Micah 5, verse 2, and other passages, were fulfilled already. And as you work your way through a book like this, what you'll see is God means what he says and says what he means. Everything that God says happens. Right down to painful childbirth. And as you continue to move through the Bible, you see Rachel now departing because of severe labor as her son, Benjamin, is born. Now, notice also here in Genesis 35, it says, and this is a tremendous description of death. It came about as her soul was departing. That is what happens when a human being dies. Death is a separation. The Lord has given us two primary components. There is what the Greek word says is the soma or the body. That's what we're like on the outside. It covers all kinds of different things, hair color, eye color, sight, smell, the five senses. But then there is a part of a human being, and this is where we are very, very different from evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking says we're all just evolved or naked apes. Go down to the Houston Zoo and look at the orangutans and you'll see, you know, great-great-grandma and grandpa, you know, in the Houston Zoo. Uh, you know, from the goo to the zoo, from the goo to you by way of the zoo over billions of years. So really, according to evolutionary thinking, we're really, we're really no different than the animals. The Bible says something completely different. It says that the human being is unique because the human being bears the very image of God. The orangutans, I have two cats at my house, very cute and cuddly, but they're not image bearers of God. And I know that they're not image bearers of God because they don't have the same intellect I have. Because I have this um, light, laser light, and I put it on the floor, and I move it around, and these two cats will chase that thing all day long. They never figure out that maybe the light is not something real. They think it's something real, and they go for it. And you you wonder after like two or three hours of this, this is how I spend my weekends, by the way. It's like, why can't they figure out that the light isn't, isn't real? They're running after something that isn't real. Well, because they don't have the intellect a human being has. They don't bear the image of God. But a human being is different. 
Most people could, I hope, I hope you're one of the ones that would figure out that the light isn't real. I did bring my light in here today to do some, no, some experiments. But a human being is very different than the animal in the sense that a human being bears the image of God. And one of the things that makes a human being unique is the soul, or the suke, as the Greeks called it, which is designed to live forever. So you have a material part, body, and an immaterial part. That's why Jesus, when he gave his teachings, he would say things like this. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Because the soul is eternal. The soul is the seat of those things about you that I can't see with the naked eye. It's your intellect. It's your emotions. It's your will. It's your tastes. It's your preferences. It's your personality. It it makes up who you distinctly are in addition to the body. And that's what's called the soul or the suke. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3 and verse 11, says God has put eternity into the hearts of men. That's why when someone dies, it's so weird. I, someone died, I, I was just talking to him two weeks ago, and yet they're dead. Or a parent dies, or a grandparent dies, and it just seems so foreign to us. The reason it's foreign to us is because God never intended death. He intended us to live forever. That's why death is sort of like a foreign invasion into human soil. But that's who we are, material and immaterial. Now, when a person dies, and this is true of both saved and unsaved, the two separate. And that's what you're seeing happening to Rachel right here in verse 18. It came about as her soul was departing. Departing from what? Departing from the soma or the body. Death means separation. The material and the immaterial separate. Now, for the believer, absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Death is actually a promotion. On my dying day, don't feel too sorry for me. Just say, well, Andy got promoted. He didn't cease to exist. He moved from one location to another. Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I would prefer to depart and be with Christ, which is much better. Christian is always in a better place upon death. Now, for the unbeliever, it's the exact opposite. Their soul, which is designed to live forever, goes into this place of conscious torment, That's described in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. But that's what death is. It's a separation. One of the best um, exegetical dictionaries is the theological word book of the Old Testament. And this is what it says about the Hebrew word death. Death is the consequences and the punishment of sin. It originated with sin. A grand theme of the Old Testament is God's holiness, which separates him from all that is in harmony with his character. Death, then, in the Old Testament means ultimate separation from God due to sin. Now, that's 
narrating it from the perspective of the unsaved. But it's a separation between material and immaterial. The New Testament Greek word for death is defined here in this very classic um, uh, Greek lexicon. Thanatos, the Greek word for death. That separation, whether natural or violent, of the soul from the body which the life on earth has ended. This um, is something that happened to our Lord Jesus when he died. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The spirit there is a synonym for the soul or the suke. His body and his soul, material and immaterial, separated. I like how the King James puts it. He gave up the ghost. This is what happened to Stephen, uh, the first martyr of the church age in Acts 7, verse 59. describes his death. It says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, receive my spirit. There's a separation now coming between my body and the part of me that's designed to live forever, I want my spirit to go into the presence of the Lord. If you're a Christian, then that's what happens to you at death. Your body will separate from your soul. Your soul will be with Jesus. Awaiting what? Awaiting your future resurrection body. So if death is a separation, a resurrection is the opposite of death. Resurrection and death are polar opposites of each other. So if death is a separation, what is a resurrection? A resurrection is when the two come back together. The body and the soul reunite. Except it's the body with the consequences of sin pulled out of it. What did God say in Genesis 3 verse 19? From dust you are to what? To dust you shall return. Original sin brought into our world consequences to the physical body. And if you don't believe this is true, just get out your high school yearbook picture and compare it to your modern day driver's license picture. Or go to your... 30th or 40th or 50th or whatever high school reunion and see everybody's unrecognizable. I called my reunion the light of the night of the living dead because I <laughs> couldn't recognize anybody. And they really couldn't recognize me. They did recognize me because of my height, but they said, you know, you've gotten a little wider since, <laughs> since high school. But we're under this process of original sin where the body is going right back into the dirt from which it came. That's what God said would happen. Sin, original sin did not just damage our relationship to God. It brought in a plethora of negative factors to the human race, one of which I'm trying to describe now, this reality of death. And when it's time for a resurrection, the two will come back in together. Body and soul will reunite, just like death 
separated the two, except you'll, it'll be you and, but you'll be in a resurrected body, the body as God intended it, with the consequences of sin pulled out of it. So you're going to look at me and say, Andy, is that you? Wow, you look a lot better than you used to. And I could recognize you and I say, wow, you look pretty good yourself. And that's what happens. This is the, the glory of the gospel where Jesus promises us that. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, Paul talks all about this. And he says, but when this perishable puts on the immortal or the imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. He goes on and he says, oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago to fix this problem of death. And quite in a frightening sense, the same is true for the unsaved. They have their resurrection also. But theirs is a resurrection unto damnation. As their body and soul reunite at the great white throne judgment, they stand before the Lord, and as their name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, in other words, they've never trusted in Christ for salvation, they are then transferred from Hades into the lake of fire where Satan was just thrown into. And the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown into a thousand years earlier at the end of the tribulation period before the millennial kingdom. See, see, we don't like to think about these things, but the Bible speaks to them. I mean, I, I would much rather give kind of a happy three points in a poem type of talk today and not cause people to think about the reality of eternity. But But if all you hear in church is... Here's three ways to improve your life, your best life now, you know, motivational principles, success principles, and you don't give any thought to the afterlife or eternity, then why have Alyssa come up here and give a missions moment? I mean, the reason she's up here and the reason our church is backing her is because eternity is real. This is real stuff here we're talking about. These are, these are immutable principles that the Creator has revealed long ago, and you better pay attention. Because what you do with this person of Jesus Christ, receive Him as your Savior or reject Him, there's only two options, is, is a decision that has eternal ramifications. And this is why the Bible is describing these realities to us. This is what's happening to Rachel. It came about as her soul was departing, separation, for she died. As this is happening, you have sort of a naming process that's going on here. Uh, the first thing you see is Rachel's name. For Benjamin, who hasn't even been named yet. It says in verse 18, It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. Now, what does Ben-Oni mean? Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. 
Why would she call him son of my sorrow? Because of the realization that she's coming to, the outworking of Genesis 3, verse 16, that his birth is causing her death. Now, there's sort of an irony in this. Um, If you go back to Genesis 30, verse 1, it says, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And I'm not sure what she meant by that, but apparently later in her life she did give birth to a child, a precious child, an important child. But the birth of that child brought into her life the reality of death. And that's why she named him what she named him. But then the father speaks up, Jacob, and gives another name to this son. It's in verse 18. But his father called him Benjamin. What does Benjamin mean? It means son of the right hand. And in the Bible, what you'll discover is the right, the right hand is the position of honor. So this name was a name of honor that Jacob gave to Benjamin. That's how Benjamin got the name Benjamin. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the position of honor until I make your enemies your footstool. Matthew 25, verse 33, the sheep and goat judgment. For tribulation period survivors. It says this, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 2 says a wise man's heart directs him towards the right. But the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And don't read your politics into that, okay? (laughs) If it's right, it can't be wrong, right? Um, What this is talking about is it's 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 a name of honor the right that God, Jacob, gave to Benjamin. And then what follows verses 19 and 20, now that Benjamin has been born, is now Rachel died. It's there in verse 19. It says, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to, uh, I'm going to pronounce it, Ephratah, that is Bethlehem. This is the second death that has been recorded in this chapter. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says this, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. If we are not the rapture generation, I, I hope we are. I pray that we are. But if we are not the, the rapture generation, every single human being within the sound of my voice will die. The last time I checked, the mortality rate is still 100%. 
And consequently, the most important thing a human being can do is prepare themselves for this inevitable reality. This too, the reality of death, is also an outworking of Bible prophecy. What did God say to our forebears? What did he say to Adam? In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And there in parenthesis is the Hebrew word for, for death. Oh, God really doesn't mean that. Come on. Let's have a few bites. No big deal. No. God means what he says and says what he means. This will be the consequence. They ate from the tree, as you know. God then declares a curse. The reality of death to them when he says to the man in Genesis 3 verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat your bread. In other words, you rebelled against me, the ground itself is going to rebel against you. And you're going to have a difficulty eking out a living. You're now going to have to work to survive, which wasn't part of the original plan. I hope you understand that when you look at this problem of the problem of evil, the, the things happening in our world concerning death, people slaving away to survive, our perspective on it is completely different than evolution. It's completely different than Eastern mysticism, which says you just keep getting recycled back through reincarnation over and over again. Because those systems basically teach that what is happening right now is normal. That is not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says everything from Genesis 3 all the way through the millennial kingdom until the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, when God is going to give us a new heavens and a new earth with the consequence of sin totally pulled out of it. Everything from Genesis 3 until the establishment of the new heavens and new earth is abnormal. It is not the design of God. God never intended it to be this way, but it came this way as a consequence of sin. And you need to keep that in mind because as you share your faith, you're going to run into people in your family or your place of business or where you work. And they're going to say, if God is a God of love, why did this happen to my grandma? Why did she get cancer? Why did this person die in a car accident? And you actually have an answer for that. The answer is, what is happening today is an abnormality. If you want to see what's normal, you study Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin entered the world. If you want to see what's normal... Study Revelation 21 and 22. After sin exits the new world. That's God's design. Everything in between is an abnormality that God never intended. Evolution doesn't teach this. Eastern mysticism with being recycled 
into this world over and over again doesn't teach this. It's unique to the Bible. And you are in a completely unique position as a Christian because you actually have an answer that the world is looking for to the problem of evil. And so death became this reality. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Well, gee, God, can't we vote on this at least? No. It's it's a law that's just as universal as the law of gravity. This is what's going to happen. Another prophecy, isn't it? God said the day you eat from the tree is the day you'll die. That's what happened. That's what's happening today. God says as a consequence of eating from the tree, painful pregnancy. This is what's happening to Rachel. Take a look at the track record. Everything God says happens. And if everything God says has happened, maybe I should have faith in the prophecies yet to come that haven't happened yet. That's what this Walvard book will do for you. You'll start reading through it and you can't believe how accurate God's prophetic word is. Which gives you faith in the prophecies yet future. See, the Bible doesn't just say believe something because God said it's true. Now, that should be enough. But the Bible will appeal to your intellect and it will build in proofs where you don't have to take faith as a leap into a dark chasm. That's not the Christian belief system. It is faith, to be sure, but founded on fact and evidence. Evidence that you will not find in any other alleged holy book. So death came. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by a man came death. By also a man, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Jesus came into the world to fix the consequences ushered in by the first Adam as the last Adam. By the way, Jesus is not the second Adam. I hear people call him the second Adam all of the time. Well, if he's second, there could be a third, right? And a fourth and a fifth, the Bible calls him the last Adam. He's the last act. In other words, if you won't accept what he did, then you're stuck under the consequences of the first Adam. There's no other option in terms of a get-out-of-jail card. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin through one man entered into the world and death through sin, that's what God said would happen, So death spread to all men because all sinned. You go to the genealogy in Genesis 5, and it says over and over again, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Adam, 930 years, and he died. Seth, 912 years, and he died. Enosh, 905 years, and he died. Kenan, 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel, 895 years, and he died. 
Jared, 962 years, and he died. But then there's Enoch, 365 years, and he never died because he was taken to heaven before the judgment of the flood. Maybe that's us. Maybe we're that generation that will be taken to heaven via the translation of the church, the rapture of the church, before the seven-year tribulation period comes. Maybe Enoch is a type for us. Sign me up for that deal. Methuselah lived 969 years and he died. By the way, do you know what Methuselah stands for? When he dies, it will come, is what the Hebrew means. Meaning when he dies, the flood's going to hit. Now, how would you like a kid like that living in your neighborhood? Every time he gets a runny nose or a little scrape, everybody's all nervous, you know. But it is interesting to me that Methuselah, look at these numbers, he's the oldest man that ever lived. And God said, I'm going to send the flood when he dies, and he's the longest living man. That shows you, does it not, the grace and the forbearance of God. God does not rush to judgment. Lamech, 777 years, and he died. Noah, 950 years, and he died. What do all of these guys have in common? They're all dead, other than Enoch. Every one of them died. Not a big shock, because God said that would happen. Then you have Rachel's burial, verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried. Now, this is a little tricky because a lot of people want Rachel's tomb to be in Bethlehem. A lot of sightseeing things that you can do in Israel will take you to Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. The problem is the Bible never said she died in Bethlehem. It said they were on their way to Bethlehem. In fact, uh, Genesis 48... In verse 7, Jacob will say this, Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey while there was still some distance to go to Ephratah. So I don't think we know exactly where Rachel's tomb is Because it doesn't say she died in Bethlehem, but it does say she died on the way to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is very significant because that is the birthplace of our Savior. And so when she dies, they put a marker on her grave. You see that described there in verse 20. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. There, there, there was a grave. There was a marker placed on it as they were going to Bethlehem, Ephratah. And it does say here, as you look at the second part of verse 20, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave till this day. That's Moses' writing. 
These events, uh, I would guess the patriarchal time period for Jacob would be in the 1800s B.C. Moses is going to write around 1445 B.C. So apparently a few centuries had passed, and by the time you get to Moses' time period, they still knew where Rachel's tomb was. It was still standing. They also knew where Rachel's tomb was into the time of David. Because 1 Samuel 10 verse 2 says, When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. There's an inference that it could have still been standing or people were aware of where it was Now we're going into the 6th century B.C., into the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, on the eve of the Babylonian captivity, said in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So there could be an inference that in the time of Jeremiah, they had some realization of where Rachel's tomb is. But the truth of the matter is, folks, nobody knows today where exactly where Rachel's tomb was. A lot of people will try to sell you on the idea that it was in Bethlehem, but that's not what the text says. It doesn't say she died when they got to Bethlehem. It says she died as they were on their way to Bethlehem. So just uh, be careful about people trying to sell you on ideas that may not be biblically true. One of the things they do for you uh, when you go to Israel and you go out on the Sea of Galilee is they put you on a boat or you kind of go across and then you go across to the other side and lo and behold, they conveniently let you out where our restaurant is selling Peter's fish. <laughs> and when you figure out how much they charge for the boat ride you understand why Jesus decided to walk instead of (laughs) take the boat. So just be careful about people taking advantage of you, trying to sell you on ideas that may not necessarily be biblical. So that is how Benjamin is born and how Rachel died. And... Next week, we'll be looking at, what about this birthright thing? Why why is Reuben the firstborn and Simeon and Levi, I think, are second and third or third and second born? But the tribe that was given the right to bring forth the Messiah, the tribe of Judah, is the fourth born. I thought rights went to the firstborn. I mean, what did Reuben do to lose that right? We'll see what he did in the subsequent verses. What did Simeon and Levi do to lose that right? We saw what they did in Genesis 34. And yet, when you look at Matthew 19, verse 28, in the millennium, there's 12 tribes. 
Reuben is still there. Simeon and Levi are still there. But they lost a privilege. And this becomes a tremendous lesson for us as Christians who believe in eternal security. I was just talking to some folks right before this session started about this. If eternal security is real and once saved, always saved is real, why not just go back to the sin nature? I mean, I'm going to heaven anyway, right? Well, it's not quite that simple. There are things that we cannot forfeit, but there are other things in the way of privileges of a temporal nature that we do forfeit. There was a riot that was supposed to go to Reuben, and when Reuben messed it up, it was supposed to go to Simeon and Levi, and they messed it up, and it went to Judah, number four, instead. What in the world happened? You have a scenario where Reuben went back to the sin nature. He didn't forfeit his tribal status, but a privilege that he should have had was taken away. Because of an excursion into sin. And so that will become a very powerful lesson for us next week when we deal with the subject of not loss of salvation, but loss of rewards. We did talk about today the reality of death and how Jesus came into the world to fix what was lost. And he did. His final words on the cross were, it is what? It is finished. He reversed the consequences of what the first Adam introduced as the last Adam. He fixed the problem. All of these problems that we're talking about, sin, death, have been solved. The only thing that the Lord commands us to do is to receive what he has done for us 2,000 years ago. The more you try to fix the problem yourself is the more you're outside of the will of God and you're building a religious system that at the end of the day can't save anybody. But Jesus can save. Jesus fixed the problem and he has asked us to receive what he has done for us 2,000 years ago as a gift. We are not saved by our good works. We are saved by the good work he did 2,000 years ago. And what he says is you have to receive this as a gift or you can't have it. Yeah, but I want to earn it. Sorry, can't have it. I want to deserve it. Sorry, can't have it. Lord, I'm, I'm messed up. I can't fix myself. Will you fix me? Will you fix, will you fix my problem by me trusting in what you did, you did? Then the Lord says, thumbs up. Now we're in business. And I would just invite every person within the sound of my voice, um, in the building, maybe watching or listening online, maybe watching or listening to archives after the fact, to not let a, moment like this go, but to respond to the convicting ministry of the Spirit and to place their personal faith in Christ 
and Christ alone for their salvation. I can't think of a better time of the year to do that than this time of the year. Where we can count our blessings, name them one by one. And there's a lot of them to count, but there's this ultimate blessing. The completed and finished work of Jesus, which we're trusting in. If you have that, everything else is just sort of icing on the cake, isn't it? So I would encourage people within the sound of my voice to place their faith in Jesus. You don't have to raise a hand to do it, walk an aisle to do it, join a church to do it, give money to do it, come up with a bunch of New Year's resolutions to receive it. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Spirit places you under conviction of your need to do this and you just respond by way of faith, by trusting in what Jesus did. It's really that easy. God made it easy. Not easy on him, but easy on us. In fact, it's so easy, a lot of people just trip right over it and say it can't be that easy. But it is. Because it's revealed in his word. Shall we pray? Father, if anybody here needs more information on how to be be saved, I pray that they would come talk to me afterwards as I'm available. We Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it speaks into our lives. Give us a great Thanksgiving and Christmas season with our thoughts focused on you. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.